started. Is the is the mic on? It's on? Yes. Okay. We are in Joshua chapter 15. So open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 15. If you've ever read through the book of Joshua, chapter 15 really begins a series of chapters that many would consider pretty tedious. If you'll notice, there is a fairly lengthy list of cities. And um, I do intend to read all of chapter 15, so I, I trust you'll bear with me. Um, I think I take the approach that all Scripture is profitable. And I think if we... There's certainly some some good things to extract from the next several chapters, and so we're going to do that. And I think it's just a good idea to read the Bible in its entirety. I know that God has included all of this for a reason. So we're going to read chapter 15. Joshua chapter 15, verse 1. And you remember verse or chapter 14 really was kind of the introduction to to chapter 15. Chapter 14 is the statement of Caleb's faith. And Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. And now we are coming to the chapter where the first inheritance is being given to the tribe of Judah. And remember chapter 14, Caleb's incident there in verses 6 through 15 of chapter 14 were really kind of an interruption where Caleb was saying, hey, let's hold off on the distribution. Uh, He wanted to remind Joshua of the promises that God and Moses had made to him about giving him the land that he had walked upon many years earlier when he was sent out as a spy. So chapter 15, this then was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah by their families even to the border of Edom, the wilderness of Zin, southward was the uttermost part of the south coast. And their south border was from the shore of the Salt Sea, from the bay that looketh southward. And it went out to the south side to Mela Akrabim, and passed along to Zin, and ascended up on the south side unto Kadesh Barnea, and passed along to Hezron, and went up to Adar, and fetched a compass to Karka. From thence it passed toward Asmon and went out unto the river of Egypt. And the goings out of that coast were at the sea. This shall be your south coast. And the east border was the Salt Sea, even the end of Jordan. And their border in the north quarter was from the bay of the sea at the uttermost part of Jordan. And the border went up to Beth Hogla and passed along by the north of Beth Arabah. And the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And the border went up toward Debur from the valley of Achor, and so northward, looking toward Gilgal, that is, before the going up to Adummim, which is on the south side of the river. And the border passed toward the waters of Enshemish, and the goings out thereof were in Enrogel. And the border went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom unto the south side of the Jebusite, the same as Jerusalem. And the border went up to the top of the mountain that lieth before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of the giants northward. And the border was drawn from the top of the hill unto the fountain of the water of Nephtoah, and went out to the cities of Mount Ephron, and the border was drawn to Bala, which is Kirjath-Jerim. 
And the border compassed from Bala westward unto Mount Seir and passed along unto the side of Mount Jerim, which is Chesalon, on the north side, and went down to Beth Shemesh and passed on to Timnah. And the border went out unto the side of Ekron northward, and the border was drawn to Shikron and passed along to Mount Bala, and went out unto Jabneel, and the goings out of the border were at the sea. And the west border was to the great sea and the coast thereof. This is the coast of the children of Judah round about according to their families. And unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a part among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. And Caleb drove thence the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Tomei, the children of Anak. And he went up thence to the inhabitants of Debur, and the name of Debur before was Kirjasipher. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kirjasipher and taketh it, to him will I give Aksa my daughter to wife. And Othniel the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it, and he gave him Aksa his daughter to wife. It came to pass as she came unto him that she moved to him to ask of her father a field. And she lighted off her ask, and Caleb asked her, What wouldest thou? Who answered, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a south land. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah, according to their families. And the uttermost cities of the tribe of the children of Judah toward the coast of Edom southward were Kabzeel and Eder and Jagur, and Kinnah and Dimana and Adada and Kadesh and Hazer and Ithnan, Ziph and Talim and Beloth, and Hazer, Hadatah, and Kerioth, and Hezron, which is Hazer, Amam, and Shema, and Moladah, and Hazer Gada, and Heshmon, and Beth Palet, and Hazer Shul, and Beersheba, and Bizjothjah, Bela, and Eam, and Azem, and Eltolad, and Chazel, and Horma, and Zigleg, and Midmana, and Sasana, and Lebaoth, and Shilhem, and Aon, and Rimmon. All the cities are twenty and nine with their villages. And in the valley, Eshtaol and Zoria and Ashna and Zenoa and Ganim and Tapua and Enam, Jarmuth and Adullam, Sokol and Azekah, and Shereiam and Adathium and Gadara and Gedarathaim, fourteen cities with their villages, Zenan and Hadashah and Migdalgad and Delian and Mizpah and Jokthil, Lachish and Bozkath and Eglon and Kabon and Lamam and Kithlish, and Gedaroth, Beth Dagon, and Nama, and Makeda, sixteen cities with their villages. Libna, and Ether, and Ashen, and Jipta, and Ashna, and Nazib, and Kela, and Akzib, and Marishah, nine cities with their villages. Ekron, with her towns and her villages. From Ekron, even unto the sea, all that lay near Ashdod with their villages. Ashdod, with her towns and her villages. Gaza with her towns and her villages, unto the river of Egypt and the great sea and the border thereof. And in the mountains, Shamer and Jatur and Soko and Dana and Kirjath Sena, which is Debur, and Anam and Eshtemol and Anam and Goshen and Holon and Gilo, eleven cities with their villages. Arab and Duma and Ashian and Janam and Bethtua and Aphaca and Hemtah, and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, and Zyre, nine cities with their villages. Maon, Carmel, and Ziph, and Judah, and Jezreel, and Joktium, and Zenoah, Cain, Gibeah, and Timnah, ten cities with their villages. 
Halhold, Bethzer, and Gadar, and Meroth, and Bethanoth, and el six cities with their villages. Kirjith Baal, which is Kirjith Jerim, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages. In the wilderness, Beth Arabah, Midin, and Sakeka, and Nish, Nibshan, and the city of Salt, and Engedi, six cities with their villages. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah, could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. And let's pray. Well, Father, again, we, we ask for wisdom in understanding your word, and I pray that um, you will shed light on its meaning and help us to extract those things from the text that are beneficial to us. I pray that our faith would increase and that we would understand more more completely your faithfulness to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, chapter 15 begins the distribution of the land really by lot uh, after Caleb has been granted his request. And Judah is the first to receive their inheritance. Um, in Genesis chapter 49, when, when Jacob had prophesied about each of his twelve sons, Judah was the first son for whom Jacob had anything positive to say. Uh, you recall that the, the older sons, Reuben and Simeon, they had committed uh, sins that were rather grievous, and, and Jacob had pointed those things out. And Judah is the first one that he comes to where, where he really has anything positive to say. And Judah is the, the tribe from which the Messiah would come. Jesus would come from Judah, and Judah uh, figures prominently in, in the history of the nation throughout, uh, certainly throughout all of the Old Testament. If you've ever read through your Old Testament, you're aware that once you get past the books of Joshua and, and particularly Judges, you know, the, the, the tribes kind of all meld together. They, they, some of the, the, the names of some of the the sons kind of fade into the background and, and you're left with Israel and Judah. Judah, the, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom, after the divided kingdom under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And and then even further on, as you read through your Old Testament, you know that, that many times Ephraim, the son of Manasseh, really becomes synonymous with kind of the northern kingdom, the, the kingdom of Israel. So it's it's not an accident that Judah is is given his inheritance first, and and then we'll see in chapter 16 that that Joseph, the two tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, are given their inheritance, and they really have the prominence, and those are the ones that Jacob had really positive things to say about in Genesis 49, and really had the the significant prophecies and the blessings predicted for them. So. Judah, along with Benjamin, of course, are the the two sons of of Rachel. Or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Joseph and Benjamin are the are the two sons of Rachel. And um, Judah, we see here, is given land. And verse number one really describes verses one through twelve really describe the outer limits of the land. And then verses 13 through 20, more specifically the borders for Caleb, the, the internal borders. And 
If you have a picture in your mind, or maybe you have a picture in your Bible of a map of Israel, um, as we read through those first 12 verses, this description of the land of Judah is actually rather easy to follow. If you have a map and you're able to look at the cities, uh, we're not going to go through them all again, but um, it was really very kind of clear there how the line was being drawn. It was really a, a big circle a big oval being shaped around the, the territory given to Judah. Another way of saying it very simply would be that Judah was basically given everything between the Dead Sea on the right and the Mediterranean Sea on the left. The description there started from the, the very southern portion of the Dead Sea, or as it's often called in the Old Testament, the Salt Sea. And then that goes over the Mediterranean Sea and then goes up along the Mediterranean Sea and then comes back over to the the top of the Dead Sea. Some of the other descriptions that we'll see in subsequent chapters for some of the other tribes are much less descriptive and, and much more difficult to follow and, and almost basically impossible to follow. The, the geography has just, it wasn't, the, the same amount of detail isn't dedicated to the descriptions of some of the other, of the land given to the other tribes as we have here for Judah. The Dead Sea, um, here in verse 2, it says in their south border was from the shore of the Salt Sea. The Dead Sea was, was one sea at that time, and the, the very southern portion really did form a peninsula or a tongue. Now today, ever since the 1980s, the Dead Sea is actually two separate bodies of water because the, the water levels have dropped so much that you know, there's there's a, a section of land between them, and that's really due to a lot of the a lot of the water that would normally flow into the Jordan River has been diverted for irrigation, and of course that's one of the things that is hotly contested in the Middle East. You know, there's a lot of, of feuding between Israel and Syria and Jordan and, and the other nations about who's robbing the most water out of the Jordan River. But anyway, as a result of that. The Dead Sea today is actually two separate bodies of water. So, it, you know, it sometimes becomes rather difficult if you have a, you know, a picture in your Bible of what the Dead Sea looked like at this time. It would, it would look differently than it is today, as any body of water would if it lost a significant amount of its volume. In verse number three, the description then is, is going over towards Egypt. And in verse number four, we see a mention there of the river of Egypt. And again, as we pointed out in, in some of the earlier weeks, the river of Egypt is not a reference to the Nile River. Um, it's, it's a reference to the Wadi El Arish River, which is a very small river. Um, it is northeast of the Nile River. And it does form the, the very southwestern border of the nation of Israel. One of the things that we have to keep in mind is that the, is the trickiness of Bible translation. Uh, many of the references to, that we have in our English Bible, many of the, the usages of the word river in the book of Exodus are a different Hebrew word than the word that's translated river in the book of Joshua. The, the, ref, the, the, the majority of the references to the word river in the book of Exodus are actually referring to the Nile River, and they refer to a much larger river. 
whereas these references are to a small body of a, a tributary, more what we would think of as a brook or a stream. And, you know, as I study this and I begin to see these difficulties in understanding that many times we have a single word in our English language that is that was translated from multiple words in the original language, you know, it, it kind of underscores to me the, the difficulty of translation. I, I can certainly, I, re, I remember recently Tim describing how long it had taken to, to do the Quechua translation of the New Testament. And as I, you know, for what little bit I know and for little, what little bit of study I've done, it's understandable to me why it takes so long because we have these types of problems where, you know, we see the word river and we don't, immediately recognize that it's, you know, multiple Hebrew words depending on how it was translated. We're, we're kind of familiar with the word love in the New Testament. We understand, many of us have been taught and we understand that there are five different, five or six different Greek words that are all translated to the word love in the New Testament. So it really makes Bible translation a very, very difficult and tricky process. Certainly not something that, you know, is to be taken lightly. In verse number 8, we see a reference to the city of Jerusalem. Now, Judah's original border, uh, as described here in verse 8, runs just south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not actually in the tribe of Judah at this time, and not according to this description. Jerusalem was originally part of the tribe of Benjamin, but it changed hands sometimes. It uh, became a portion of the tribe of Judah later on because Benjamin was unable to secure it, unable to protect it from from those Canaanites that were allowed to remain in the land. And, you know, again, one of the things that as we read through these descriptions of the land, uh, particularly in chapters 15 through 18, that we have to keep in mind is that things change. Um Cities that had a name at one time 3,000 years ago, those cities may exist in an entirely different location in Israel today. Sometimes cities are relocated after they're destroyed by, you know, by a conquering enemy. And then later on they come back and they re- rebuild those cities in other places. And, you know, really that's not that unusual for, for geography to, to change the borders of, of nations. Um, you know, we see change the layout of the land. We see evidences of that in our recent history. I made mention, I think it was either last week or the week before, that uh, prior to 1877 in Iowa, certainly somebody would have thought you were talking foolishly if you would have said that Iowa comprised any land west of the Missouri River. And yet today, because of the the fact that the Missouri River changed course, there is a couple square miles of Iowa known as Carter Lake that does lie on the west side of the Missouri River. And in 1980, many of you probably remember that um, Mount St. Helens erupted and blew the top off the mountain, and it's 1,300 feet shorter now than it was then. And so, you know, a lot of things change. Uh, you know, and so it's, you know, it, it really makes it difficult to to pinpoint, um, you know, to try to, to map out these descriptions that are given in the, in the Scripture, 
to try to do that according to the geography as we know it today, it, it really makes it difficult and in many times impossible. Because, you know, these descriptions and borders were given 3,000 years ago. Many things have changed. They would have been, there wouldn't have been any doubt to those alive at the time what these things meant. Remember, these soldiers, these men who were part of this conquest, they had been uh, scouting out that land and, and you know, wandering over that land for seven years just while they were in the midst of the fighting. And so, you know, they had a, a detailed understanding of, the, of that land. And so, the, you know, there wouldn't have been any question in their mind as to what these things meant. And yet today, you know, many times we struggle. And, and if we try to, you know, fit them into the, you know, the, the way Israel looks in the 21st century, it becomes very difficult. In verse number 13, we see here the specific reference to Caleb's land, you know, a much smaller portion of the entire land of Judah. And so we have reference here and we see there uh, specific wording. It says, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua. And again, in chapter 14, we, we saw that Caleb was simply requesting what what he had been promised and what he was entitled to. In verse number 14, we see that Caleb made good on his promise. Chapter 14, Caleb had said that if the Lord be with me, I will drive out the remaining inhabitants of the land. And he had exhibited great faith. He had uh, proclaimed that he felt as young at 85 as he had 45 years earlier. And he was trusting the Lord to continue to give him the victory. Well, he did that. Um, His faith was translated into action. Uh, Everything in chapter 14 would have been simply words if Caleb hadn't followed up what he had said by action. You know, we have a familiar expression, you know, some people are all talking no action, or or as they say in Texas, all hat and no cattle. But uh, Caleb, he could not have been accused of that. And that's, I think, why we have this recorded here, is to let us know that Caleb's faith was was like Rahab's faith. It was it was backed up by action. It's easy to proclaim something, but it's it's a whole nother thing to do it. I always think of Ezra seven ten. Uh, it says Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. There's a huge difference between head knowledge and then actually translating that into into actions. And then verse number 15 says, And he went up thence to the inhabitants of Debur, speaking here of Caleb, and the name of Debur before was Kurjus Sefer. Now, Debur, as we seen in some earlier chapters, had already been captured. So this is, in effect, a recapturing. Uh, uh, you know, again, we're, we're kind of sometimes splitting hairs, but it, it really carries the idea of occupying permanently now. You know, they had kind of gone in and weakened the resistance in all of these areas of, of Israel, but now they're coming through and, and you know, making, making it clear they intend to occupy these areas and to, to drive these people out permanently. In, in verse number 16, Caleb begins to use his faith and actions to encourage the faith and actions of others, particularly those in his family. And we see that special incentives are offered 
for the completion of difficult tasks. Notice he says, He that smiteth courteous sleeper and taketh it, to him will I give acts of my daughter to wife. I remember in 1989, after the earthquake in San Francisco, during the World Series, the, the Bay Bridge collapsed. And it's not uncommon for bridges in California to collapse during earthquakes. They're, they're getting a lot better with their technology, but, but certainly at that time and even since, there have been several other bridges that have collapsed. And the, the California Highway, the Department of Transportation had offered an incentive, you know, they, they put out the bids to the contractors and the congestion from the, from not being able to use that bridge, you, you can probably imagine how populous that area is and, and you know, it was taking people hours to get back and forth to work, having to find alternative routes. And so the California Department of Transportation put out an incentive, and they said they, they estimated that it was going to take three months for that bridge to be rebuilt. And so the incentive was was that every day earlier that that bridge was reopened, the, the company that had won the contract would get a $200,000 bonus. So the company that reopened that bridge opened it 75 days earlier, so they received a $15 million bonus. And, you know, that's kind of similar to what we have here. Uh, you know, Caleb's recognizing that this is a difficult task, and he's putting out an incentive for that dif difficult task to be completed. And, you know, as I mentioned last week, I, I'm a, maybe I'm not justified, but I'm a little bit skeptical of his claim in Chapter 14 that he feels as young at 85 as he did 45 years earlier, and I'm wondering if, if, you know, he's kind of thinking maybe this is a task that's a little bit better suited for somebody that's a little bit younger than 85. But that's just, that's just me. But this is not uncommon. Turn to, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's take a look at a couple of other instances of these incentives. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse number 20, 25. This is, of course, the incident where Goliath is antagonizing the Israelites, defying them, mocking them. First Samuel 17:25, and the men of Israel said, "Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel he is, is he come up, and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter to wife." or would give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And that last expression means they won't have to pay taxes. I mean, how do you like that, Glenn? If you risk your life, you don't have to pay taxes. You get out of paying taxes. But they, there was three incentives there. Great riches, a daughter, and, and tax-free living. Turn to First Chronicles chapter 11. David makes a similar offer. A similar in, provides a, a similar incentive for a difficult task. First Chronicles chapter 11, verse number 5. It says, And the inhabitants of Jabus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. I mean, they're, they're just putting up a, you know, almost a challenge. You'll never take us is what they're saying. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David, and David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first 
shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zariah, went first up and was chief. You can turn back to Joshua chapter 15. So David there provided an incentive of leadership for the leadership of the army, leadership roles for the one who captured and conquered that resistance. So what Caleb is doing, this is, this is understandable. This is, this is nothing new. Uh, incentives for difficult tasks. Verse number 17 says, And Othniel, the son of Canaz, the brother of Caleb, took it, and he gave him actually his daughter to wife. Now, obviously this is unconventional. I mean, we don't do this today. We don't promise our daughters to those that achieve you know, difficult tasks for us. I mean, this was a different time period. Um, the presumption, of course, I, I would, I think, the presumption by Caleb and, and men who would have um, offered these things was that whoever was going to be able to pull this off was going to be, you know, very courageous and have leadership skills. Um, you know, these were very difficult things to do. So, you know, it's not likely that they were just, you know, throwing their daughters into a situation where they were going to be stuck with some loser, you know, that just happened to pull something off. I mean, they, you know, these, these men were more than likely going to be, you know, this was going to be something that was a sign of things to come, that they were going to be able and capable. Some, you know, a lot of people read a lot of things into this text. I mean, verses 18 and 19 have a myriad of interpretations. Um, some think that this was all rigged. Not, not really rigged in the sense that Caleb wasn't being honest, but that Caleb already had Othniel in mind when he made this offer, that he had already seen godly leadership qualities in this man, Othniel. Uh, some people really subscribe more to the romanticized version of this story. You know, that Othniel just saw so much in Caleb's daughter that there was absolutely, you know, no chance anyone else was going to beat him to this task because, you know, he was he just had to have her. Again, you know, you're really kind of reading a lot into the text, I think, to, to really come to that conclusion. I think, you know, particularly if you go back to 1 Samuel, that story that we looked at with David, you know, even though Saul had promised great riches and his daughter and tax-free living to the person who killed Goliath, you know, you don't ever get any any indication from that story that any of those three things were, were what motivated David to do that. Uh, David was, you know, seemingly motivated by wanting to defend the Lord's name and wanting to defend the reputation of the nation. Um, you know, there's just no indication that, that he that he did it for those reasons. So, you know, I'm not necessarily completely discounting that, but I just think, you know, you're you're kind of jumping to some conclusions some to some conclusions there to to read into this that Othniel really had a you know, a great affection for his daughter. But but nevertheless I suppose that's a possibility. Othniel was a very capable leader. Now, if you turn to Judges chapter three, we'll just take a Look at a few verses that describe him as he became the first judge of Israel. Judges chapter 3. You know, it is 
probably not surprising, but you know, when we get to Judges chapter 3, it's such a brief period of time that has transpired between when when this conquest was completed and when this land had been distributed. And here we are only a generation later and things have already degenerated into complete apostasy. You know, the nation of Israel has become involved in the idolatry of the Canaanites that they failed to drive out. And so God has to begin to raise up judges. And, you know, uh, we can certainly relate to that. I, I remember just last week talking to Brad Rice and that he had made the comment, you know, it's it's very sad to see how quickly, you know, one generation in our nation, if you just look at the past couple of generations, you know, there's there's a lot of changes that have taken place just within the last few generations. So it's it's understandable that, you know, they kind of seem to have been at a high point there under the leadership of Joshua. And here we are not that many years later and things are just, you know, they're falling apart. Judges chapter three. Verse number five. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives, something that had been forbidden, gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam in the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. When the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed against Cushan Rishathaim. And the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And that's the pattern that we see in the book of Judges. The, the Israelites fall away from the Lord, and the Lord raises up judges to deliver them. So you can turn back to Joshua chapter 15. We see that Othniel did possess those qualities, and the Spirit of the Lord did empower him at times to provide the the kind of leadership that was needed to deliver the nation from these kinds of problems. Verses 18 and 19, though, are really quite puzzling, at least to me. I mean, there are so many different interpretations of, of what they mean. We see here that uh, Othniel is is encouraged by his wife, the daughter of Caleb, Aksa, Aksa, to ask her father for a field there in verse 18. And yet it ends with her dismounting from her animal and actually talking to her father about it herself. And so you know, there, there's there's a transition there. We don't really know why, you know, initially he was encouraged to make the request and, and ultimately she ends up being the one to make the request. Some believe the Southland here. Uh, notice verse 19, it says, Who answered, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a Southland. Most believe the Southland was, was a parched, was parched. It was inferior to the springs that she requests. And, you know, she... She's really asking for when she says, give me a blessing, you know, that that it, that that could almost be interpreted as, you know, somewhat of a of an insult, you know, essentially saying to her father, you know, you've given me a desert. Give me a blessing. You know, I, I don't you know, I'm not satisfied with the, with the gift that you've given me. Give me something additional. You know exactly why she persuades 
Othniel to ask for the land, but then ends up asking for it herself. Again, we're not clear. Some believe that she was dissatisfied with Othniel's negotiations, and, and so she kind of felt she had to take matters into her own hands, something that would have been culturally very abnormal. Um, she didn't want to be slighted. We, we know from First Chronicles that Caleb had many sons, and they were also given inheritance. And maybe she feels that she's being slighted and, and wants to make sure that she receives just as much or more so as they did. That, that's one explanation. Another different explanation, though, is that some people believe Othniel demonstrated true wisdom here in, in that it was his idea even though she had persuaded him to ask her father for the gift, that he persuaded her to ask for it. Uh, he demonstrated, they believe he demonstrated wisdom in knowing that it would be much harder for a father to refuse the request of his daughter than it would to be to refuse the request of a son-in-law. There might be some truth to that. Some people see that she demonstrated true humility here. She married the man that Caleb had promised her to. She is submitting to the man, and if, if in fact it's his idea that she make this request of her father, she's submitting to her husband in that regard. Certainly her dismounting from her animal to speak to her father shows respect and reverence for her father. So these are all positives. Some people equate this to the fact that this is really a picture of the relationship with the, that the Lord has with us. Caleb would find it difficult to say no to her. He wants to give her the best. And, and you know, Matthew 17.11 says, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven good, give good gifts to them that ask Him? Might be some truth to that also. She's setting a great example in not being afraid to ask. It does appear as though she ends up actually getting more than she requests. Notice the wording there in verse 18. Initially, the, the, the request is she's trying to persuade her husband to ask her father a field. In verse 19, then she asks for springs, and she's actually given the upper springs and the, and the nether springs or the lower springs. And everything I read says that this is the way it still works in Israel today, that the southern part of Judah is actually irrigated by bringing water down from the northern part of Judah, that the southern part of Judah is inferior and that that northern water is needed to to help irrigate the crops. And so she is probably demonstrating great wisdom here and understanding, she and her husband, and understanding that what her father had given her really wasn't going to be such a great wedding present. It wasn't really going to satisfy the needs of their family. Again, if she's given more than she requests, which it appear that which it appears that she is, um, you know, haven't we kind of experienced that in our in our own life? I know I have. Many times when I've asked the Lord for something, He has exceeded my expectations. I remember ten years ago when we were looking for a church and we were praying for a church. Um, you know, we didn't have any idea that we were that this, the church even had a school. And so we just considered that an, an extra blessing from the Lord, that there was a school here. And, you know, I could go on and on. I mean, there's been many times when I've asked the Lord for something and prayed about it. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, the Lord gave me much more than I ever asked for. I mean, that's the type of Lord that we serve. And so that may be an also a picture here of what's represented. Another 
interpretation is that she was just high maintenance. She's never going to be satisfied. She always wanted more. I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Um, I would suspect that the reason that this is included here in chapter 15, which is you know right after we're also told about the faithfulness of Caleb, is that you know this was really a, a positive incident. It wasn't a negative incident. That this was her and her husband demonstrating great faith. That they were exhibiting faith in believing God to give them the land and to keep the land. I think that that's really the prevailing sentiment about this passage is that, you know, it's like father, like daughter, you know, that, that she sees the great faith that Caleb had. And so then that is, um, you know, contagious that, you know, he has set a great example in, in asking the Lord for something and, and having that being given. And so she is doing the same thing. You know, this is no more a violation of the 10th commandment. You know, thou shalt not covet than Caleb's request was in chapter 14. We certainly are never given any indication that, that Caleb was being greedy or covetous in asking for the things that he had requested in chapter 14. He was merely asking for what God had already promised him for his faithfulness because he had wholly followed the Lord. So I think the general conclusion, again, there's a lot of a lot of interpretations about verses 18 and 9 feet. I think the general conclusion is that she asked in, in faith and her request was granted. And, you know, that's what we're instructed to do in the New Testament. We're in James chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 17. We're, in, we're instructed to ask for things in faith. Verses 20 through 63 are a list of the cities and the villages. And... In Genesis chapter 49, verse 11, Jacob had promised Judah great prosperity. And so, really, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Here, that prosperity is realized. I mean, we see this long list of cities and villages that Judah had been given, which, you know, again, is a testament to God's faithfulness. We see the diversity of the land. We notice in verse 21, it says these are the the areas along the coast. Then we see down in verse number 33, the, the mention of the valley. And, the, and in verse 48, the mention of the mountains. And in verse 61, the wilderness. I mean, this is an all-encompassing land, a very rich land, just like it was described many times in the previous books, a land that flows with milk and honey. So God has been very faithful. He has delivered on those promises that, that you know had been promised to Judah for a long time. Bethlehem, one thing to note, Bethlehem isn't even mentioned in these verses. Um, Micah 5.2 says that Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. So the absence of the, of the mention of Bethlehem really is kind of a fulfillment of that prophecy. In other words, Micah is saying that Bethlehem was considered insignificant, so insignificant that is not even mentioned here in the original conquest of the land as being one of the cities of Judah. And yet later on, that is the place where, where the Lord would, would be born. In verse number 63, we have a, a negative statement, and almost every one of the subsequent chapters ends with a similar statement. The people were um, not entirely faithful to the Lord. They didn't follow completely in driving out the inhabitants. Notice verse 63, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Israel, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Now, turn over to Joshua 17, just a page or two. Joshua chapter 17, verse 16. 
we see a similar statement. And the children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron. Probably a pretty good indication as to why they were unable to drive them out. They were, they were fearful. They were unbelieving. You know, God had told them to, to trust Him despite how difficult the task appeared, and yet the chariots of iron were intimidating to them. Turn over to Judges chapter 1. We've looked at these verses before. Judges chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Again, the, the reference to the chariots of iron. It says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron unto Caleb, as Moses said, and he expelled thence the three sons of Anak. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Again, Back to Joshua chapter 15, we have the reference there to the chariots of iron, and that's probably what intimidated them. I like the, I like the way Matthew Henry puts it. He just says simply, they could not because they would not. They couldn't drive them out because they just, they didn't believe. They didn't, they didn't want to follow through. So again, Joshua chapter 15 is, is really a good introduction to the the following chapters. Um, Several of the chapters that we're going to look at in the subsequent weeks are not going to end on nearly as a positive note as this one did. Um, And really that's kind of, you know, chapters 14 and 15 are really uh, the introduction and, and, you know, letting us know that, um, you know, Caleb here is is the model of faithfulness and the model of trusting the Lord, and that's you know that we that's the example that we should endeavor to follow. The other tribes that we're going to be reading about in the following weeks, uh, the things aren't nearly as positive. They they you know I mean they all have their problems and they all have their shortcomings and their failures, but um, you know we're going to see that the others that the problems are much more much greater. So this is a record, you know, again, we, we may found this somewhat dull and tedious and boring and, and, you know, in our daily Bible reading, I have a tendency to skip it. But it is worthwhile. It's, it's a demonstration of God's faithfulness that he has given them all of, these, all of these cities and all of this land and made good on the promises that he had given them. All right, we have a couple of minutes. Does anyone have any, any comments or anything they want to add or contribute? All right, well, thank you. You are dismissed.